Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. Thanks for this evening, this time together, this moment of life that we are all graced to be a part of and to be in the presence of one another. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to encounter you in your word. Tonight we read a powerful story from the Gospels, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves in this story. See the ways in which you are desiring for us to be healed, to be made whole, to be more united to you. We pray, God, that anything distracting us or taking our focus away from tonight, anything worrying or weighing us down, will uh, just be offered to you in this moment, Lord, that you would take it upon yourself to allow us to be free of it so that we can fully enter into this time. And we ask Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon each one of us and upon this place to guide us during this, uh, this discussion of your word and this time of prayer as we encounter you through the story of the woman at the well. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. Come on in. We're going to be in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, starting in verse 5. John 4, verse 5. Now, we're going to be reading the story of the woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well. So we're going to be reading from John 5 all the way to John, uh, John chapter 4, verse 5, all the way to verse 42. Quite a long story. And the reason for that is, this week and the next coming weeks, we're preparing to read the gospel for uh, the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of Lent, which are the scrutinies. If you don't know what a scrutiny is, that is uh, the time of year that those who are preparing to enter the church, the unbaptized, have a series of prayers and exorcisms said over them among the public assembly. That happens at the nine o'clock mass uh, the next three weeks. And accompanying those very powerful ceremonies of prayer uh, are these three very powerful gospel stories of Jesus bringing healing and unifying very broken people or broken situations uh, and making them whole restoring them, bringing, bringing them life. And so this week we're reading The Woman at the Well. Next week will be the story of the man born blind. And the following week will be the story of the raising of Lazarus. So you can kind of see that trajectory of healing that we're on these next three weeks uh, because of those important rites, RCIA rites that are happening. So um, I'm going to read this passage. We will read it twice through, even though it is longer, because I want to really give you and uh, invite you to really enter into the scene. If you've seen The Chosen, especially, I think this is at the very end of season one, you probably have a clear image from that. I even encourage you to delete that from your mind, as good as that is. Try and just paint this picture anew as if you've never heard this story before, you know nothing about it, you've never seen this woman, you don't know what's about to happen. You're just following Jesus on the trajectory of his ministry so far in the Gospel of John. Very little has happened. Uh, the, the wedding at Cana, he's gone and cleansed the temple in Jerusalem very early. He's obviously been baptized, called his first disciples, and he's had his interactions with Nicodemus. And that's pretty much all that has happened so far in the Gospel of John. And so in his, the midst of his travels, it says in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. And that is where we pick up. So we're going to be in John 4, starting in verse 5. First time through, just listen to what is being said, engage your senses in the story, and try and paint this picture in your mind. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? 
For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you do not even have a bucket and the well is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered and said to him, I do not have a husband. Jesus answered her, You are right in saying, I do not have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Your people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the anointed. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking with you. At that moment, the disciples returned and were amazed that he was talking with a woman. But still no one said, what are you looking for or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? They went out of the town and came to him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say in four months the harvest will be here? I tell you, look up and see the fields ripe for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving his payment and gathering crops for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For here the saying is verified that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work and you are sharing the fruits of their work. Many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me everything I have done. When the Samaritans came to him, they invited him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more began to believe in him because of his word. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of your word, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we've read this once. We are going to read it again. <laughs> Hopefully you have a clear picture in your mind. We always read these verses, uh, these passages a second time because we want to get a good sense for what is happening, to not be distracted by trying to follow along with the general flow so that now that you have this image in your mind, you can focus very much on the words as they are being read and see how the Lord speaks to you. What is the Lord causing you to notice? What words stand out or resonate with you? What details jump off the page? Pay attention to those the second time through. Write them down, reflect on them, and ask, God, why are you having this stand out? What are you saying to me through this passage or through this particular word? So second and final time through, John chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, 
Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you do not even have a bucket and the well is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come keeping, coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered and said to him, I do not have a husband. Jesus answered her, You are right in saying I do not have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Your people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the Anointed. When he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking with you. At that moment, his disciples returned and were amazed that he was talking with a woman, but still no one said, what are you looking for? Or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? They went out of the town and came to him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged Jesus, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, In four months the harvest will be here? I tell you, look up and see the fields ripe for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving his payment and gathering crops for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For here the saying is verified that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work, and you are sharing the fruits of their work. Many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me everything I have done. When the Samaritans came to him, they invited Jesus to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more began to believe in him because of his word. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe because of your word, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look back over, the, look back over that passage. I'm sure a few things stood out in those many verses. Uh, if you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know what stood out to you, the questions that you have. But for those of us here, we're going to spend about 10 minutes at your tables discussing the things that resonated with you, as well as any questions that you have. And then we'll bring those back to the larger group to discuss and dive into this reading a little more. So go ahead and take the next 10 minutes. All right. I know this is a long passage with many things to discuss, many questions. Uh, and because it's a long passage, what I'd like to do is just give a little context first, if that's all right. And so um, a couple things that I think are, are helpful to know about this. So Samaria and Samaritans. Okay, we need a little bit of history for this, but in the Old Testament, 
There was a time of division uh, where the northern kingdom of Israel split the southern kingdom of Judah. And the southern kingdom of Judah remained somewhat faithful, whereas the northern kingdom of Israel was completely in debauchery and paganism. And the prophets were sent to these two kingdoms to tell them, you have to bring back your hearts to the Lord. You have to return to the proper way to worship. But the northern kingdom, uh, they keep getting prophesied that all this destruction is going to happen. If they don't, they don't listen, and they get totally wiped out by the Assyrians, uh, the Assyrian Empire. And these ten tribes of Israel that had moved north are completely lost forever. There's no like genealogical record of them that's reliable after this fact. Um, and what interesting thing happens is in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 to 25, it says, The king of Assyria brought people from five nations, Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvim. And he settled them in Samaria, this region. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he settles them there, and the people who remain there, the Jews who remain there, end up intermarrying with all these foreign people. The Jewish people in the southern kingdom of Judah who stayed faithful and who tried to you know, get the rest of the, the rulers and the people, there were some good kings, some bad kings, and they ended up getting taken off into exile, but they end up in exile staying faithful to the law, and they're able to return home. And so when they return home, they look at the Samaritans with this sense of disgust, like you've betrayed the covenant, you've betrayed our culture, you've intermarried, you've done things against the law, you're worshiping their gods, and we don't want anything to do with you. Uh, there's this passage in Sirach, chapter 50, verse 25, where Sirach is saying, my whole being loathes two nations. The third is not even a people. And he's talking about Samaritans there. Samaritans to him are not even a people at all. The inhabitants of Seir, Philistia, and the foolish people who dwell in Shechem, which is where uh, biblical scholars believe this town of Sakar is the same, one in the same town as Shechem. And so this place, these people, this geographical region is seen in complete utter contempt and disdain by the Jewish people. They see them as unfaithful, ritually impure. They're not permitted to worship in the Jerusalem temple. And so when these Jewish people come back from exile, this is about 400 to 500 years before, before Christ, the Jewish people start rebuilding the temple, and Ezra is help. Ezra and Nehemiah are helping them do this, and it says in the book of Ezra in chapter 4, this, it's primarily Zerubbabel who is doing this, um, but it says, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple, the enemies are the Samaritans, the locals, and they come and they offer help. They say, we want to help you rebuild this temple so that we can finally worship again. And the Jews say, no, we don't need your help. And so as a result of this kind of cultural disdain and division, the Samaritans go and they build a temple on this mount, Mount Gerizim, which is brought up here by the woman at the well, as a place for them to worship. And they build this about 400 years before Christ, and it's later destroyed by John Hyrenius, who is one of the Hasmonean kings, the Jewish kings, in like the year 128 B.C., uh, and it's destroyed. But the ruins are there, and they still continue to go there and worship. In fact, in 2 Maccabees, uh, where is this? Verse 6, in, in uh, chapter 6, verse 2, it says, They profane the temple in Jerusalem and dedicate it to Olympian Zeus and the one on Mount Gerizim to Zeus. So they're, doing, they're having pagan and Greek worship at this temple on Mount Gerizim. And so when Jesus is saying, you worship what you don't understand, he's talking about this whole history. And when it says, oh, you can't even share things with Samaritans, Jews and Samaritans don't even share common drinking vessels, it's because Samaritans were ritually impure, they were seen as less than by Jews, and there was no interaction to happen whatsoever. Beyond that, interacting with an unescorted woman in public is seen as completely inappropriate in, at this time. That's why it's interesting, it says, where is this? In verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And if you were listening, you'd be like, what is going on? Which is why the very next verse, John is saying, lost my place. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Because you as a reader would be like, how does nobody have a problem with this? And John knows what you're thinking. And he says, by the way, no one else is there. So you're thinking this is weird. They would have thought that was weird too. And that's why when they come back, he notes that they don't say like, why are you here? Why are you talking to this woman? Even though they were thinking it. 
This was conceived, conceived as totally inappropriate. Also in the Old Testament, the place of a well was a place of betrothal. Isaac met his wife, who happened to be his cousin, Rebecca, at a well. Jacob met Rachel at a well. And so Jacob's well, which was a later well, became this very uh, supernatural place of God's presence and abundance, but also became indicative of the place of betrothal, a place of unity, the most intimate type of unity that we know, and a model for the intimacy that God is inviting us into. So Jesus here is using the Samaritan woman as a representative of all the division and disunity that has happened in Israel's history and wants to call back together and reintegrate, recreate a new kingdom for all people through her as representative of the most divided, the most set apart from the way things were supposed to be. Now set this against what happened in the previous chapter. Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, one of the privileged rulers of the most faithful Jewish class of citizens, the Pharisees. And if you compare these two conversations, they're very similar. Jesus tells Nicodemus that you have to be born anew. He's confused by this. He's like, do I go back in my mother's womb? How does this happen? He says, if you're not born of water and the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom. And then he doesn't understand. He says, are you a teacher in Israel? You don't get this? The same thing happens to this woman on the total other end of the socioeconomic spectrum. He says, I'm going to give you living water. She doesn't understand. Where can I get this living water? She thinks the translation means a running stream. She literally thinks that he knows where there's a babbling brook somewhere. She's like, great, I don't have to come to this well. Tell me where this river is, and I'll go get water there. And he's like, no, you don't get it. Whoever drinks this water will never thirst again. She still doesn't get it. And so he calls out the fact that she does not have a husband, and she's been living an adulterous life. So these two things put next to each other show that from the highest, most revered official in the faithful Jewish religion, all the way down to the most set-apart woman, the most opposite person you could get from Nicodemus, and he approaches both of them in the same way and desires integration and healing. What a beautiful story to invite all of us into during the season of Lent. Like wherever you are across the spectrum of faith, how close or distant you feel from Jesus, whether you feel worthy of his love or not, whether you feel um, comfortable in a church setting or rejected by the church, Jesus is coming through this passage to each of us this week to show us that he desires us to be with him to be brought back into that intimate wholeness and relationship with him. That's why it says he had to pass through Samaria in verse 4, right before this. Because most Jews would go around Samaria. They'd go across the River Jordan, go up through Perea, and they would go up to Galilee. But Jesus goes there, and not only that, he stays there for two days, makes himself and all of his disciples ritually impure, just so that he can be there with those people to tell them, I am here for you. And it's not Nicodemus, the holy Pharisee, who goes out and preaches the good news. It's the woman at the well. In the East, her name is Photina. So if you look up Saint Photina, P-H-O-T-I-N-A, her name comes from the same word as photon, one who is the bearer of light to others. She is the one who goes and bears witness and testimony, the one who is the least likely. All of this turning upside down people's conception of what the kingdom of God was going to be. And he goes to her, this is the last thing, he goes to her and she says, I know that there is a Messiah coming. And the interesting thing about the Samaritans is that the Jewish people believed that the Messiah, when he was going to become, was going to be like King David. He was going to be a military political leader and he was going to overthrow Rome. The Samaritans had it more correct. They weren't waiting for the Mashiach, the anointed one. They were waiting for the Taheb, which was the promised prophet to follow in Moses' footsteps. And so their version of who Jesus was going to be, who the Messiah was going to be, was actually a lot more like Jesus than even the Jews thought was going to come. And so you see all of this background, all of this context to show us all this division that was in place, all these expectations people had, and how Jesus is willing to come face to face with people across the entire spectrum of faith and the socioeconomic status, you know, uh, what's that called? Spectrum. <laughs> Thank you for translating this. <laughs> Just so he can tell them, there is a place for you here, and I have come to bring, to bring newness, to bring life, to make you whole, to bring things back to the way that they were. That is the beauty of this passage. So I hope that answers some of your questions, but I'm sure there are more. So what are some things that stood out in this passage, other questions that you have? Yes, Roberto. Uh, it may be totally irrelevant, but 
good? Yes, yeah, go. Uh, we probably have maybe have the same question here. Um, this, the, the Reaper analogy here. Mm -hmm. uh, who's the Reaper that's already received the payment? One question. Mm -hmm. The question is, and who would, uh, I sent you to, to uh, reap what you have not worked for that others have done. Mm -hmm. So two questions. Who's the Reaper that's already received the payment? And who did the work before the, the, the disciples? Yeah, so I think Jesus is speaking here both historically and like what just happened. So in that moment, if you pay attention to the details of this passage, they are the reapers, the disciples are the reapers about to reap what has just been sown by the woman at the well. Because he says, look at what, you know, he says, look out. And a few verses later, they are coming up over the hill from the town to come to him and welcome him into the town. So if you put yourself in that position, you can kind of see the scene unfold. You read a few verses ahead. That is the harvest, the literal spiritual harvest coming for them to reap, even though they did nothing. They were off buying food in the town. And this woman, who is seen as kind of this outsider, probably not capable of anything very spiritual or religious, uh, is the one who went and sowed the seed and bearing this supernatural abundant harvest for them to kind of have the glorious you know, reception of it, even though they did no work. Um, there's a prophecy about this or kind of a warning in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But this is about like, if you don't follow the law, if you don't follow the laws of Moses, this is what's going to happen. You will be oppressed and robbed continually with no one to come to your aid. Though you betroth a wife, another will, um, another will have her. Though you will build a house, you will not live in it. Though you plant a vineyard, you will not pluck its fruits. So this is a warning about what will happen if you're not faithful to the Lord. And that ends up happening to the Jewish people. They lose everything. They get taken off into exile. And so Jesus, in one sense, is taking this Old Testament warning about what's going to happen when you're not faithful. And he's reversing it by picking someone who is the embodiment of an unfaithful person and showing how she is now being one who is faithful when all of these people in the Old Testament, the faithful Jewish people, couldn't hold up their end of the law. And so he's kind of, I think it's kind of tongue in cheek. He's comparing this Old Testament passage that they all would have known. But he's also showing them in that moment, like, look at, at, at how abundant this response is. And you had nothing to do with it. This isn't about you. You know, this is about something greater. To answer your question? Yeah. Great. Matt, you had a question? Yeah, I'm not sure what question, but it's just kind of um, when it talks about, um, like, you have a drink of water, 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 baptism, you know, in a spiritual sense, that is what happens when you're baptized, whether you realize it or not. The catechism says baptism is the, uh, the key to salvation, like we are saved through our baptism. So when we enter that living water, we really will, if we live out that baptismal call, we'll never thirst again, meaning we will make it to heaven if we live in response to the responsibilities of our baptism, you know, if we do the things that we promise to be faithful to. But I think what he's saying here also is like, you know, when you drink again in an earthly sense, it's because you're, you're thirsty in a very carnal bodily way. In a spiritual sense, when you drink that water, it means it's pointing you to the fact that you are going to have eternal life. But I think that still means you need to keep drinking. You know, and we can very easily turn off the faucet. You know, the Holy Spirit is that water coming out. But we still need to turn the faucet on and off. Or keep turning it on. I don't ever know a reason why you need to turn it off. <laughs> it's you know, too much Holy Spirit for me right now. You know, uh, just need a break, Lord. You know, uh, it can feel like that. You know, but but God doesn't want to overwhelm us. He wants to overshadow us, which is different. It's like encompassing and shining over, guarding over everything in our life, and that can feel or seem overwhelming at first, but it's not meant to be. But we need to keep receiving the gift. We need to keep drinking 
from that fountain of grace, from that living water, if we're going to constantly be in pursuit of eternal life. It's the same thing like the theological virtue of hope. We need to have our eyes fixed on the prize. That's why last week we were talking about the transfiguration. Why did Jesus get transfigured? To show them a glimpse of the glory that is to come, so that in moments of persecution and suffering, they would keep their eyes fixed with hope on the goal and not fall into what I think is the, if you, I gave a talk uh, yesterday at St. Killian's about the seven uh, virtues and how they are directly opposed to the seven deadly sins. And the, the deadly sin that's most directly opposed to hope, in my opinion, is sloth. That when you lose hope, you suddenly just stop caring. You know, you start procrastinating, you start putting off good things, you start focusing very much on your own bodily rest and your own autonomy. I want to do this, I don't want to go do that. We lose a sense of hopelessness or of hope. And so when someone is hopeless, you know, we use phrases like, wow, they really let themselves go. And it's a very bodily kind of experience of hopelessness, you know. Uh, and so I think if we have to, if we continue to have hope, we have to fight against the seven deadly sin, the deadly sin of sloth. And that's a constant battle. It's not something you're just going to drink once and be like, cool, I'm never going to procrastinate or be lazy again. You know, it's a constant thing that the devil's throwing at us. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Yes. Um, it mentions the, obviously, Jacob gave to his son Joseph mm -hmm. as well. And it reminded me of what I've learned about how it seems in Genesis there's the younger brother always getting favored. Yeah. Cain and Abel, you know, Ishmael, Isaac, you know, you yeah. name it, uh, Jacob and Esau. Why do you think that is that it's always, it seems, the youngest sibling uh, receiving God's favor rather than the oldest? And the oldest, they're all kind of the same. I mean, Ishmael and Esau are these wild men. Cain is a very violent man. Yeah. They all have these similar qualities to them. Mm -hmm. Have you read anything about that? Have you reflected on that yourself? Why that's yeah. Because yeah. there's a lot of laws in, in Deuteronomy that talk about the blessing of the firstborn. Now, the firstborn is meant to get a double portion of the inheritance. And yet, all through the stories of the patriarchs, the firstborn is kind of surpassed by the secondborn or later. And Joseph, I think, is like seventh or eighth born. Like, he's not even, like, on the map, you know? Um, and I think it's to show us that God works in unexpected ways. He works through the unusual suspects, and he does things in an upside-down and unexpected way. But most of the Bible as we know it, like the manuscripts that we have and the references we have in them, we have references that they were written down, at least these versions that we have, during the time of exile, doesn't mean there weren't previous copies. We just have the ones that we have have direct references to things that were happening during the time of exile that they wouldn't have been able to reference. And so if you're a Jewish people in exile trying to survive, that's why I think it's interesting that Jacob is praised because he steals his birthright from his older brother. And why would God praise being kind of sneaky and cunning? Well, because when you're in exile trying to survive, that's actually probably a praised quality. In order to overcome your Babylonian oppressors, how do you keep surviving and maintaining your Jewish heritage? You have to find any way to supplant these things that they're doing and try and maintain your, your faithful religious practice. And so however cunning or uh, calculating you need to be to do that, these stories, the way they presented the details of the patriarchs kind of give them examples of how to survive. That's something I think. That's not necessarily, it's not like dogma or doctrine or anything. That's just a biblical interpretation I have. But it's, it, I think it bears, bears fruit like later on too. You see that just in the culture, even at the time of Jesus and how they're trying to supplant Rome and sneak around them, you know? And so I think these Old Testament stories are about in moments when you're being oppressed and persecuted, do whatever it takes to pursue the Lord. And even if you get in some sketchy kind of crazy gray areas, God is going to be faithful if you're faithful to him, even if you have to find like wild roundabout ways of doing it. And so the expected person, the Nicodemus, the firstborn, that kind of role, don't pay attention to them. Pay attention to the unusual suspect. Don't pay attention to your rulers and oppressors, the leaders of Babylon and of Rome. Pay attention to the little guy, the underdog, because it's through them that a nobody carpenter from a backwater town of 200 people is going to come and redeem the world. The most unexpected and unusual of suspects in history, changing the world forever. So the Old Testament primes us to look with a, a, a lens of looking for the little guy and not expecting him to come in big thunder and glory, 
And that was a problem for a lot of the Jewish people. They thought King David was coming back, and they got Jesus. And that's why he was crucified instead of praised. Yeah? Could this gospel be perceived as giving hope for divorced Catholics? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I will say, um, you know, being an RCIA, I deal with a lot of, you know, previous marriages and divorces and things like that. And there's, I think, a, a misunderstanding about the church's teaching on divorce and about marriage. Because when you're divorced, the church still considers you married. Like, you're still in a valid sacramental marriage. And so there needs to be a distinction between a divorced Catholic and someone who is divorced and remarried without an annulment. That, that second category, is the one that the church needs to intervene and act in. And yes, we want to minister to anyone who's had the pain of divorce in their lives, because we don't know the circumstances. The civil law doesn't require that both parties even agree. My wife tonight, while I'm here, could decide, yeah, I think I'm kind of done. She could, and she could file the paperwork. Praise God, she's not the type of woman to do that. But she could. She could file the paperwork, and no matter what I say, it would go through. Now, is God going to look at me with judgment based on what we know about the moral law, that you have to know that it's a sin, consent to it, and it has to be a grave matter when I didn't even consent to it in the first place? And so we have to recognize that people who find themselves in that type of situation and many other similar situations— that the church historically may have just seen as blanket immoral, there's a lot of pastoral gray area there that we need to be sensitive to and recognize like some of these situations just fell in people's lap and, or maybe they just didn't, didn't realize that the vows that they were making to this person, they were making to a person that changed or they didn't really know at that time. And that, in, in essence, in some of the annulment uh, laws and canon law, can also invalidate the marriage because you are professing faithfulness to a person that you think you know and yet they've hidden something from you. And then later on, reveal that. That is potential grounds for an annulment because you married a, in a, uh, a lesser version or an image of a person that wasn't a, an accurate reflection of who they were. They didn't honestly disclose everything to you. So there's a lot of, of nuanced things when it comes to even just that one moral issue of the church. I mean, it does say in Scripture, God hates divorce. Does it say he hates divorced people? Nowhere. Nowhere does it say that. And so we have to separate the fact that sin is something that causes human brokenness and that God wants to fix. But he doesn't look at anyone labeled even as a sinner, the woman at the well, the most outcast of person you could find, and say, you don't belong here. No, he chooses her to announce that he is the Messiah through, to be, in essence, the first evangelist of the Gospel of John, to go and bring the good news to an entire community, to where now she is a celebrated saint in the Catholic Church, very revered in the East. In the West, we've forgotten her name, and I think we need to celebrate it, because she's probably, if I'm not mistaken, listed probably on Wikipedia as a patron saint of divorced Catholics. Nor as one of her patrons, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, there are several of those, but I, I'm, I assume she would be one of them. And if she's not, she should be. Other questions? Greg. Greg. Said to her, believe, believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Then he goes on about God wanting people to worship him in the spirit. Mm -hmm. You want to comment on that between the physical location for worship and also in kind of sense of the spirit? Yes, yeah, so. You have to also interpret this within the context of all of the Gospels. Because what Jesus also does is he institutes a new Passover in the Eucharist that is meant to be celebrated in a specific way, in a specific geographical place, even though it's not in the temple anymore. So what he is doing here is he is separating this very rigid, regimental law and ritual-based type of worship in the Old Testament from what he's going to do next. And that the way in which people are part of the church is going to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we are the body of Christ. We are the church. The Bible says that no one can even say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So by the fact that we even believe in the first place, we are connected through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're connected as a global church through that same power. However, the way in which Jesus gives us to worship is still through the Eucharist. So we don't want to go so far as to say, oh, I can just believe and be Catholic off on my own. That would be too far, too radical, and too inappropriate of an interpretation based on all of the information we have in the Gospels. But this detail is to point out it's no longer through the high priest and the Levites that you need, to, you need to get to God. Jesus now becomes the one mediator for all of us 
So we now have direct access to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. No longer through the temple, through the priests, through a sacrifice. It's through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ to whom we can all approach at the altar whenever we want to receive and encounter God in the most intimate way possible. That's why when Jesus dies, the veil in the temple is torn. The place only the high priest could enter, now now there's no separation. God is literally saying, like, through this, like, seemingly insignificant tearing of a veil, like, hey, everyone come on in. Everyone's welcome. The party's here. Like, there's no longer any separation. The door's no longer closed. You now can participate in a deeper, more intimate way. You don't need a mediator anymore. Jesus becomes your mediator. That's what it means. Other questions? Comments? Yes, no. I can't help also just in relation to that last point, um, seeing the parallel between that statement about worshiping in the spirit and the spirit and the truth to uh, John 14, where he says, uh, uh, I will pray to the Father if you keep my commandments and I will send you a comforter who will abide with you, the spirit of truth, Mm -hmm. the Holy Ghost. Um, And so how, I mean, is there, I mean, there obviously is some relation to that, but I don't know if you can maybe speak to where that relation stands because it seems like throughout a lot of the chapters of, of John too, he's basically saying his his power and uh, the possession and, and knowing fully manifest to all of all persons of the Trinity, mm-hmm. you know, throughout each of the chapters, not veiled as a uh, symbol so much anymore, like as, as it was to um, when people were reading about the accounts of the fathers, not, not of the patriarchs themselves, but I don't know if you can sort of speak about this, uh, this more clear manifestation of, of, you know, God and all his persons to, to the people in the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think kind of it's a way in which parents raise their children and reveal them the truth about the world in stages. You know, I'm not telling my daughter like the headlines in full detail of the news in the world. But when certain issues come up, I'm revealing to her a certain degree or level of the truth. And because God is truth itself, he reveals himself in stages. That's so called the economic trinity or the economy of salvation that God reveals himself, not all at once as trinity, even though he's always and eternally present as a trinity. But he reveals himself first as father, then as son, and then reveals himself as the Holy Spirit, even though you have signs of each of those present throughout all of scripture. Um, there's a great, uh, oh, who wrote, who did this? Uh, of a rabbi, maybe it was N.T. Wright, it was maybe a Protestant scholar in collaboration with a rabbi, I can't remember, but someone sent me a video about uh, ways in which the Trinity was present in the Old Testament. And there's certain passages where you have the Father and then the angel of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord, both of whom are seen as divine and treated as God, but are separate from the Lord. And so there's these kind of three divine persons present in the Old Testament Jewish language, even though they're not called Son and Holy Spirit. They're called the angel of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord. Um, The truth is a big theme in the Gospel of John. It shows up in the prologue in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we saw his glory. The glory is of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And the Catechism says that Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. And so without Jesus Christ, we can't fully know the truth of who God is. And the same would be true of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I often say this, it sounds very like a very controversial phrase, but it's, uh, Jesus is not enough. It sounds very like anti-Christian, right? But Jesus is not enough because he says, it is better for you that I go so that I can send the advocate, the spirit of truth, and he will teach you everything that you need to know. So Jesus himself is saying, I've done all I can, but this is not enough. I need to go so that you will have what you need. And so just as a father nurtures his children, just as God the Father nurtures the people throughout salvation history and waits to that moment till they come into maturity and are able to better understand their mission and his relationship to them. In the same way, children sometimes don't understand the rules or appreciate their parents until they're young adults raising their own kids. And then they go back and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe all that you had. I had no idea, you know, like the gratitude that suddenly comes out, you know. It's very much similar, I think. Truth has to be revealed in such a way, or it's either too overwhelming or too impossible to understand all at once. And you see that played out in the Gospel of John. Like he has all these I am statements, I am the way and the truth and the life, you know, all these things where he's slowly revealing his divinity. Um, But then saying, don't tell anyone, because he doesn't want it to get to that climactic point too quickly. So it's very clear, like the way in which Jesus wanted us to know God fully in who he is as a trinity 
was very uh, form formulated and very um, what's the word I want to use here? Um, it was just well planned. That wasn't the word I was thinking of, but um, he knew what he was doing, as I always say. To answer your question, yeah, yeah, beautiful. I think we're at time. Yes. What a passage, right? And there's so much more to sit with in this passage. And so I really invite you to sit with the woman at the well. And I don't mean just open your Bible and read this passage. I really invite you to sit at the well with Fotina and be with her as she is with Jesus and allow Jesus to be with you. Because Jesus is speaking through these next three Sundays in particular, the desire for deep healing and wholeness in your life and in mine. And he looks at us and he sees all of the equivalents in our lives that you're right when you say that you do not have a husband because you've been married five times before. He sees all of those dark things that we tuck in the corners of our heart that we think no one else knows or that we're worried other people see and they're going to judge us for. He sees it all and yet he stays at the well. And he doesn't care about the judgment incurred upon himself and he brings no judgment to you and I. He sits. He allows us to be with him, to question him, and to slowly come to the realization of his desire to love us to make us whole, to bring us back into right relationship, and then send us out, broken as we are, upside down, unexpected, unusual suspects as we may be, underqualified, unequipped, to give us all that we need to go and proclaim the good news to the world. That's such a gift. You don't need any other tools in your toolbox to go and start proclaiming the gospel. We are all the women at the well, and all we need to do is receive that time with Jesus and be sent as we are. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this word, rich and deep and beautiful as it is. We know there is so much more that lie in the words of these pages. And so we pray, Lord, we would sit with this this week, that you would speak to us in new ways. And when we hear this beautiful gospel proclaimed this Sunday, we would experience the power and the healing that you desire us to know through it. We pray especially for those in RCIA who will be prayed over and powerful prayers of exorcism in front of the community so that they will be soon welcomed into our community through the sacraments of initiation. We pray for them, and we ask that you bless them and each one of us here in the ways we most need it as we seek wholeness and healing and deeper relationship with you throughout this Lenten season. Guide us and bless us until we gather again, and we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.